Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Hey, Francis. Thanks so much for tuning back in. I'm excited to drop this episode one day early because we have two episodes coming out this week. The next one is a special. And next week, of course, as part of our three-week series, we will stick to the topic at hand. Before we start, I'd like to thank Carly Khadash, who has been on this podcast several times, for introducing me or directing me toward our guest today, Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, who I'm very excited to introduce in a few minutes. Stick around until the end of the episode because I will share some thoughts that were said after the interview that I have permission to share with you. I want to congratulate The Francisca Show because over the weekend we hit a massive milestone for this podcast and I want to thank you as a listener as well as you as someone who shares and spreads the word to your friends and family about this podcast to help us grow the reach and grow this podcast. About tomorrow's special episode, I want you to know I'm dropping the unedited version for one day or for a very limited amount of time, and then I will cut some parts out. So make sure to listen to it tomorrow. And today's partner for our podcast is Janie Havens. Dreaming about staying home with your kids and making money on the side? Become a sleep consultant. Sign up to get the free guide to walk you through the steps to become a certified pediatric sleep consultant. The link is in the show notes and know that if you do end up signing up for the course itself, you will be supporting the Francisca Show podcast. If this is your first time listening to the Francisca Show podcast, welcome. And you probably don't know that I am a podcast launch coach and I help people launch their podcasts in just one day. So if you or anyone you know is thinking of launching a podcast, please do make an introduction. I love helping people do what I clearly love to do. Lastly, I'd like to mention that the Francisco Show WhatsApp group has been very active over the weekend. Our guest from last week, Rachel Weinstein, joined the group, and we have been having a very active conversation there. So please do join, participate, and apologies if I am not responding quickly enough to the one-on-one private messages I'm getting from you. So I hope you enjoyed this episode today, the one tomorrow, and I will also post a link to a fundraiser. Someone dear to me in the community in Moscow is running right now to raise money for making Pesach. So if you feel generous today, please donate. And if you don't, tomorrow's episode will definitely, hopefully, inspire you to donate. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Rabbi Mike Moskowitz from Midtown, Manhattan. And Rabbi Mike Moskowitz is the rabbi of the LGBT community, shul. I think you are the only public person who stands as the ally and is publicly defending the space for from... Jewish Orthodox LGBTQ members. So this is a super interesting topic for me. It's so new. I feel like I'm, I have to pause every few seconds to make sure everything I'm saying makes sense and sounds correct. 
I did have to do a lot of research to prepare for today. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a distinct honor and pleasure. And although I occupy an awkward amount of space in the world, there are definitely other people who um, are allies in different spaces, but it is relatively new that there that there is space for people to not have to choose between a religious identity and a queer identity or a genderqueer identity. Let's just give everyone here a little bit of background on who you are and how you got involved in this life. Sure. So I was a rabbi at Columbia University working in the world of College Kirov, um, and I was a rabbi of the synagogue in Harlem, and someone in my family came out as trans. And at the same time, I had students and congregants who, as I started speaking more publicly in kind of those spaces about the trans experience and making sure that our sanctuary was a literal sanctuary for people to be their most authentic and genuine selves in relationship to God and community, it became really clear that there wasn't a rabbinic voice to address these intersections of of gender-based spiritual practice and identity. I learned in the mirror in Yerushalayim, I learned in BMG in Lakewood, and speaking to my rabbayim, there was one kind of pivotal moment where I was speaking to a very big tzaddik, Reb Noch Orlovic, in Nertzisrol. And in the middle of the conversation, he called me and I was telling him what was going on. And I asked him his advice and he said, you know, the truth is I've never gotten this question before. And I said to him, Rebbe, if you don't know, then who does? And that like really, I think for me, gave me a certain amount of permission to start thinking more publicly and out loud about these conversations, which really have not been happening historically in in these communities. And unfortunately, the exact opposite has been happening, that there's a complete erasure of the queer experience. And then, you know, people who are gay are forced into heteronormative marriages, and it's not sustainable. When the world was a less safe place where people were closeted inside the religious communities, outside the religious communities, there really wasn't a place to be out. So people suffered in silence. But now there are communities and the world has shifted that people can be out and so people have choices. And as a result, it's often, you know, the, the person who is married to somebody who's gay, they didn't know, uh, that really suffers. And the children suffer when they find out that somebody's been unfaithful. So when I uh, started doing this work, not everybody was super happy about the thinking in, you know, kind of a public voice as opposed to thinking about this more internally. And I found myself looking for, for new work. And one day, about four and a half years ago, I uh, got arrested with a bunch of other rabbis uh, for civil disobedience in in a protest at uh, the San Rotondo over DAC over immigration. And in the back of the police wagon, there were five male-identified rabbis, five female-identified rabbis, and there was this metal mechitza down the back of this police wagon. And the woman across from me said, look, we're a bunch of rabbis. Does anyone want to share some zero? And it's a captive audience, we're all in handcuffs. And so I had just written something on gender and clothing, and so I shared some thoughts and through the course of the day, we got to share a lot about the way in which we see the world and kind of the voids and the ways in which we could partner and she and the partner together and they created this position. And so now I'm finishing my fourth year as the scholar in residence there. And it's been an amazing journey. And it's very exciting that that it's not a tale of two cities. It's like the best of times for the Haredi world in terms of LGBT folks. And I think like the edge that that's taking up a lot of the time in terms of counseling parents is not so much supporting from parents whose kids have come out, but supporting from families whose kids have come out several years ago, and now they're getting engaged. And so there's new conversations of what does that mean to support from people who happen to be queer, who happen to be engaged in in a relationship with someone of the same gender, who want to have families and raise from kids. And what does that look like within within the different worlds? Okay. So we've jumped ahead. I'd like to go back a little bit 
And I'm sure for many of our listeners, as much as they'd like to consider themselves open-minded, this is still very confusing and they still are not quite sure what LGBTQ stands for and how they all fit in together because they're so different, even within the same framework. And I'm sure their dynamics within the community, hi, you're ruining everything for us here and you're putting us all in one talent pot when really the issues can be completely different. And I'd like to also discuss what are the identity issues religiously for, for them individually. And I know you do specialize specifically in trans and I am more interested in trans because I think that there's a lot more fad going on there potentially yeah. <laughs> with gay and lesbian. Okay. So I'm giving yeah, you the floor. So absolutely. So just like, like there's no one from community or, you know, one, I mean, she was, there's no one queer community. So gender identity and sexual orientation are different. Who a person is when they go to sleep is different than who a person wants to sleep with. Someone who's asexual, someone who's not attracted to anybody is not free from gender. So their lanes, which are not completely parallel in that they do intersect, particularly around intersections of feminism and what does it mean within a social construction to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And so in those ways, they impact each other. One of the things that's really important to think about around language and labels is that the words are never going to be as expansive as the experiences that they come to describe. That Meshur Bain of the Maral understands that he had the speech impediment that if you experience the divine, how do you put that into words? Like words are limiting. And also around kind of newfound freedom, there needs to be the liberation of language. The abolitions of Gula is that when we were finally able to be free, like how do you even speak about things that they couldn't even fantasize as being a reality? So the words that we have today, like don't do it justice, and it continues to, to evolve and to expand. It's pretty fluid. But Lamasho, you know, if you have somebody who's, let's say, assigned, you know, female and is married to a, a man in a heteronormative marriage, and then, you know, she transitions and they stay together. So the fact that they're now two men, that doesn't mean that the person uh, who was assigned male is, is, is gay, right? They can still have be attracted to, to, to people of the opposite gender and be with somebody who's a trans experience. And so as much as like we want to have definitions for these things, it doesn't, doesn't really help because people are much more complicated. You know, within our traditions, you can observe that the things which are essential about us, like these are who we are as an, as an evidence. A person does something wrong and they get good at their right? It's external. They've gotten good at kind of mastering making poor choices. So who we are is, you know, we're Bitsalamalikim. And what that looks like today in terms of the dynamics is shifting, that I think there are basically four different steps within society that historically for the last 3,500 years, this was seen as some sort of intolerable deviancy, that if a person came out, they needed to get out of the community. And now I think the majority of the Orthodox world is in a place of like, it's a tolerable deviancy. Like, I'm not telling you I'm okay with it, but I'd rather you be here than not be here. And then to go from, from that space to acceptance and celebration of, you know, God doesn't put extra people in the world. The identity itself is, is not a mistake. Um, and it's important to know oneself. So those things don't take 30, 500 years, right? Those things sometimes take a few days or weeks or months. But um, so I think one of the things that's happening now is because of this proximity that most people in the firm world know somebody in the LGBT world. And we use the word queer as kind of an umbrella term, like in the queer world. 
Rabbazik says by, by the brothers, they saw him from afar and sought to do him harm. From a distance, it's easier to dehumanize. So when, when we get to know people because they're in our family and they happen to be trans, they happen to be fair. So the trans experience is very hard for cisgender people, people whose identities uh, and the way in which they're assigned and gender align. Um, it's very difficult to understand like what that means to be trans. Like, how do you know? What does that mean? Um, we have this aspiration of getting to know what we don't know. And a deeper level is that to know, you know, Adelo Yoda is that I, I know that I don't know. And so part of what it means to be a white person or a white presenting person in this country is to recognize that we don't know the experiences of people of color, for people who are able-bodied, we don't understand the experiences of, of accessibility, uh, for people who are able to read, we don't understand, you know, the, the struggles of not being neurotypical. And part of being cisgender uh, is not really having an awareness of, of gender beyond their bodies. When the Pasuk says, the entire nation saw the sounds. Most people don't have synesthesia. Most people don't see sounds. But the Torah wasn't just given for most people. The Torah was given for all people of all experiences, even those that we can't relate to. So the big shaila is, so like, what does that look like today? And I think that is a new question. But when we think about God having gendered attributes and not having a body, we're created in the image of a God that has no image. And we have a tradition of gender-based spiritual practice in that a man's arm and a woman's arm are different and that like one needs to fill in. I think you can open up new opportunities to really explore where does gender lie and does it really you know, lie on a soul level. Parallels to, to the ger have been made that the Zayr says, we don't talk about the, 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 the non-Jew who converted. We say the ger is gayer, that the convert who converted because really their neshama was by Matantayra and it's just a function of, of kind of time. So is that is that how you treat trans of people and because somebody who's cisgender <laughs> i'm using this word for the first time Good. it feels like you just do whatever you want suddenly you're in this queer park and you want to put on to fill and put on to fill and you want to marry so and so marry we're absoluting you from everything else that the standards or expectations are applied to everybody else so, can you say a little bit more about what you mean? Because I'm not I'm sure when you say you absolutely. So I, I don't want to compare exactly, but if somebody's blind, let's say, right, they are putter from the mitzvahs. I don't know if they're putter from making a varios, but uh, like if they make a varios, are they still responsible? But the idea is, I think socially, the way people think, oh, okay, you're trans, just do whatever you need to stay mentally healthy. Uh-huh. So you don't kill yourself. You want to put on fill and put on fill. And like, we're not giving a hechsher on this, but just do what you need to do to, you know, live the most wholesome life you can. We don't want to make you feel bad or uncomfortable or make you drive yourself to suicide. We don't want to exclude you. And, and of course, there is exclusion by definition, but it sort of falls into the category of just figure it out versus let's find halachic ways for you to do this. Or do you have halachic answers to, you know, a woman becomes a man. Now she wants to put on tefillin. How do you go about that? Sure. So I think there's like this meta question about where gender lies. And if we even have access to know, is there a particular moment along the spectrum of transitions that halacha can say, like at this stage, the halacha now sees you as, as this gender, whether that's a name change or the recognition of the trans identity, uh, maybe it's hormones, maybe it's surgery. And you're right that you know trans lives matter, but it can't be that we can feel like we've done our work just to get people to the, this side of the brink of suicide, right? The lives that, that folks live also matters. 
And so we're all responsible for doing the Ratzon Hashem. And I think part of this of society being in transition right now is that we don't have great answers to all of the questions. So I think right now, the most responsible approach is to see what's at stake in terms of the competing interest, right? So for example, putting on tefillin. If a woman wanted to put on tefillin, right? That is not a, a particular isser, like the Atzim. There are concerns of, that are external and so people do what they do, but like, it's not something that's, that's bad. same thing with Gagin and Leo, right? Shulchan says, right, it's, it's covered at Sibor, right? It's, it's an external issue that, that the congregations felt that it wasn't socially appropriate. Okay. So in most communities that's established and it's not, and it's not subjective from community to community. We don't get to press refresh to, to take a vote. Like, is this, maybe it's the biggest cover to give, you know, a woman an Leo. So that's in most communities, that's not how they function. But again, it's not. It's not that maker adin, it's usr. It's that it's a right, it's an external consideration that, that makes its way in. What about marriage, kedushin? So I think that part of what needs to get separated in the world is that like there's a lot of homophobia in, in orthodoxy. In religion in general, there's a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of transphobia. Let's say that you had two trans folks, each being assigned a different gender and each presenting now uh, as a different as, as a new gender. So it presents as a man and a woman, right? So that they're two trans folks. Like, would that be offensive? Like, meaning if you, let's say you could take out the halachic issues of Miman of Shach, right? Either halacha sees them like this, halacha sees them like this, but, and you can cover all of the bases, right? So if you could get the halachic piece out, is, is, a, is the trans experience offensive to the from world? And I think that's, that's the, the threshold. The same thing with the queer experience. If you have a person who's single and they say I'm gay and Rebbe, it's not shot is I'm not attracted to this woman, shot is I'm not attracted to any of the women, Right. So what's our response as a community to this person? Like, what does a win look like? Free from, a, from like, is this mutter also? Like, that's not the question. Like, do we want to purge the from world from LGBT yidin or not? So if the answer is yes. So we're saying, you know, that it's not shaykh and is to be from and to acknowledge these identities. So if this is who you will hold yourself to be, then there's no space for you here. The alternative is to say that that the Torah and Kali Yisrael, right, happen to include these identities because it's given to Kali Yisrael. And within Kali Yisrael, we joke there's one in every minion because it's about 10%. So what do we want to do to, to answer those questions? So if we're willing to acknowledge the experience, right, you can't pass in a Shailim to know the Metzias. If you're willing to acknowledge the Metzias, so then, okay, so there's a Shailim to ask, like, what's, what's Taka win? But I don't think that's where that's. I don't think those are the conversations yet. I think it, it's mainly like, how do you know? Have you you've never dated a woman? You've never been married to a woman? You'll see, like, should make your kugel and chones will be fantastic, right? Like that's where the conversations have been. And unfortunately, because of that rabbinic practice, you have all of these broken homes where nobody's from anymore. Because when the wife finds out that the husband cheated on her with another guy because he because he's gay, there's often a decent amount of compassion. And never, I, I feel so horrible that you were in this situation. When she finds out that the, that he and the Rav was Masada Kedusha knew before they got married, so there, there's no compassion, there's deep anger because after uh, right? That's what the Gemara says. You have to marry somebody. You can't marry them without seeing them because maybe you're not going to be attracted to them. So, but the fact that you're not attracted to anybody of the opposite gender doesn't make it mutter. And so, like we as a society need to own that the rabbinic track record here is horrific. Um, you can't defend it, and so we need to have new tzurutzim. So I don't know that we have all of the answers, but we have to at least acknowledge that there's like a new shaila to be asked. So I think in the Haredi world, when it comes to the trans experience, acknowledging that it's not a mental illness is like still work that needs to get done, that it's not a fad, that like this is trending, that this is something that we don't understand most of what happens in the universe. We don't understand why for most, but we have to be able to answer. And so in action and, and, and telling people that, that God hates you and you're an abomination, it's also something that people have to answer for.
So I think I think that's like the most accurate kind of depiction of where we're holding. I, I think that's that's the work that needs to get done. Okay, so you did go into the territory of it's not a fad, this and that. I did some research on that also. There, Abigail Schreier wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, and she started out the book as a lawyer who just wanted to explain the First Amendment, how you can't make anyone use any pronouns. You can't make people salute the flag in this country. And and then she she was pro everything. But with her research, what she noticed is that the the most common area or demographics where it's happening are young uh, adolescent girls and they're doing it in groups. And if you take away their phones or with other ways of intervention with new friends, potentially either they may be lesbian or they are just very uncomfortable going through puberty and going through other things, which is totally normal. But it, they're putting the trans label on it when it may possibly not be trans. And maybe one person out of the group, maybe, but it's impossible or based on her research, based on how many people are reversing it or regretting it later on as they grow up. And just to put it out there, if you're under 21, you can't buy alcohol in this country and you can't vote if you're not 18. But if you want to you know, but potentially stop your fertility uh, or mess with your fertility in the future or remove your body parts, you don't need parental consent suddenly. And you could do it, you know, the same day you want to do it. There's a big difference between the youth and mature adults who can make such significant decisions for themselves. And I feel like having this conversation without acknowledging that there is a big difference because they are ruining the reputation for actual trans people by abusing it or reversing their their experience. I'm familiar with her work and you know I, I disagree humbly that the stakes are high. There's no question. Anyone who knows trans kids, it, it's not an easy existence. Society doesn't make it an easy existence, whether it's sports and schools or you know the ways in which society questions whether or not they're, they're real. But the stakes are high and, and, and making choices or choosing not to choose also has consequences. Often there's an awareness of gender identity much earlier than there's an awareness of sexual orientation. But you see kids, even as young as four or five, six, saying, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, having no awareness of relationships or, or any sort but of- But isn't thought. some of that totally normal? I'm not saying all of it. I mean, I think the trans experience is normal, right? So I think that- um, No, that I'm, by normal, I mean, it I doesn't mean, mean they're actually trans. It means it's a normal experience for a straight person. So, right, for, for, for someone who's cisgender, right, to say they're not their gender, I don't think is particularly common. I think- I mean, children dress up and they play pretend and they imagine yeah. all kinds of things. And today they want to try it on yam- a yarmulke. Like that's totally, I don't think twice. Right. So if, I think, if I think dressing up and playing that. pretend, right, is acknowledging that we're playing pretend and like fantasizing or imagining, right? That's different than saying, no, you don't understand. You don't know who I am. So like that, that's a very different lane. And so adolescence, by its very nature, we recognize it's neither here nor there. In fact, many mental illnesses, right? In adolescence can't even be because nobody knows what's permanent, what's shifting. And so life life is hard. Being a kid is hard. And it's healthy to try to figure out who 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 you are. Like that's part of it. But that's not, in my experience, what I hear from trans folks. 
that when there's an awareness of who I am, it, it's not dissimilar to somebody who, you know, either is, let's say, a Balchuvo or a Ger, who says, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I have this understanding of the Rebbe Shalom. Like, it, it, there's a clarity there, and the consequences of the, the of that clarity impact me. So what do we say to somebody who wants to become from at 10? You don't know what you're doing. Say, like, you're not in a position to make these decisions, right? The consequences are on the physical body different, but on the soul, they're no different. So Chazal understands, right, that for some people, when you think about, like, convert, doing the that that they're exploring, and this is not going to be the last step on the train, the last step on the train, right? They're trying to figure it out, and for some people, they go the distance, and some people, they don't. The trans experience, for some people who are questioning, right, not everybody's in a binary of being, meaning, being completely male or female for many they're they're gender queer they're they're gender nonconforming they're non-binary and sometimes there's a process of that kind of self-awareness where like i know i'm not this and i'm not sure exactly and that's part of being healthy and that fluidity of being able to say in the moment this is who i am so once we acknowledge that people are healthy and that we have the capacity to change that we're meant to change we're supposed to be different after each day so we try to make informed decisions, particularly about kids not having to make any sort of permanent decision when we understand that who they are is just as a human being very much uh, in transition from being a youth to being an adult. The good news is that with medicine and with, with the research that's been done for trans healthcare, generally people don't have to make decisions right away, right? You have a kid who comes out as trans at six, right? There's a whole bunch of years that you don't have to do anything that has permanent consequences. And, you know, if by the time they're 14 or 15, there's right, it's, it's, it's now the vast majority of their life, certainly their conscious life. So when we think about what choice should parents make, what, what's, what's healthy for, for doctors to advise, right, science-based medicine says that the best way to deal with trans health is to support people in their identity and their transition. So I would say that the situation is difficult, right, that you have to make choices to either pursue a transition or to not. And so whenever a person is making choices where the stakes are high, it's anxiety producing. But I think science-based medicine recognizes that that the safer bet, the, the healthier choice is to be supportive. You disagree with the whole, if there's a certain percentage that reverses or regrets their decision to transition, especially if it happened when they were minors, that doesn't play into you were questioning and it's normal and you don't have to, you know, take big drastic decisions right away so, or as a minor. I think healthy supportive advice is you don't have to do anything. Nobody's telling you you need to have surgery. No one's telling you you need to have take hormones, be who you are for people who feel that like who they are needs to be represented through, you know, these types of assistances then like we're here to be supportive. If a person wanted to, to have any sort of other surgery where, you know, where some people might say that it's an elective and for other people, they might say, no, no, I can't, like I, I, I to be able to function as who I am in the world, I, I need to present this way. When you uh, have such a massive percentage regretting I it later. Percentage. I, meaning I've been doing this work for, for a number of years. And I'm specifically um, talking about youth, not yeah, and, and his, the, the the research and what I've seen through the the, the trans health center at, at Mount Sinai here in New York City that it's generally those who who uh, start acknowledging it younger 
that it often has, you know, it's a greater indicator of the permanence of that identity. But our identities as human beings often shift, and that's just part of living. And so, like, we can't, like, obviate making choices. So, again, I, I think healthy choices are making the most informed decision. And when children are involved, so there are hopefully parents and there's hopefully doctors and mental health is always part of these conversations. And there does seem to be a, a greater shift these days in not having bottom surgery. Uh, it seems to be trending because part of, of what's happening in society is that if we recognize that our bodies are not actually great indicators of genders, so then why does a person have to change their body to conform to a particular gender identity? So as kind of that space, you know, kind of shifts, there's going to be movement. You know, in the first kind of wave of the modern trans movement, it was almost three to one male to female. It's now three to one in the opposite direction of, uh, of female to male. There are, I think, interesting ideas out there why that might be. But at the end of the day, it doesn't make a difference, right? We're not dealing with a rave. We're dealing with a human being in front of us. And so the fact that, that you know, there might be a mute, that that's motsoi, right? So you have to do a dream trip like any other choice we make. But at the end of the day, a person is not a statistic. A person is a pulse. A person is an ashama. And uh, we have to make the informed decisions, right? You wouldn't ever say, like, I'm not going to get married because there's a uh, segment of society gets divorced, or I don't want to marry this person because make this a degree from in five years or 10 years, right? When a person dates somebody, you, you get data points and you try to get as much information to be able to project what, what you think is going to happen in the future. We're not prophets, but saying that a person shouldn't create space for people to transition because there's some people who, who make different decisions in the future, then you shouldn't make any choices about anything. So when I'm sure you get a lot of calls from parents who are panicking, their child just came out to them. What, what do you talk to them about? What's your response? So- yeah. So sometimes there's a lot of shame. Like, what did I do wrong to have a queer kid, to have a trans kid? And so part of this is that it's a reframing that maybe you're a very special person that a Kaddish Baruch who trusts you to, to have such a child that really requires, you know, extra care to be able to support them in their, in their identity as a from queer person or a trans person. I think the most important thing that any parent or teacher can do is to listen. It, it's such a different kind of skill set of what it means to be sensitive to things that we can't, you know, understand through our own first-person narratives, developing the ability to listen, especially to someone who's younger, especially if you're bright and well-educated and a teacher, to be able to say, like, I know it's my job to teach the universe, but here, actually, I need you to be my teacher because I don't understand this. I, I, I just don't even understand what you're saying. But I think that space of knowing that we don't know is a very generative space. And the other thing is that, like, it does get better. It does get better. You're not alone. Kaddish Baruch doesn't make mistakes. And it's amazing to Cholim that parents are, are reaching out, that there's support groups, they're wonderful organizations. I actually am part of a few different groups of, of people that support parents of, uh, of trans kids. And you'd be surprised which Shashivas have queer kids and grandkids. And uh, there have been many who have made very clear statements that like their schools are schools for Jewish children and having two mommies, two tatis is not, is not an issue. And once that happens, like once you have a generation that went through school where everybody knew somebody in the class who had, you know, mommies or tatis. So then like, it, like, so we're going to go to the chasana. We're not going to go to the chasana. Like it, it be, oh, it's, it's my children, it's my child, it's my sibling. I think, you know, there's just a way in which it's been being destigmatized. So what often happens when parents come out is that immediately they find out when people know like, oh, you know what my cousin also has, or, you know, my, I also have, or, you know, and so people start reaching out and immediately there's a lot of comfort in knowing that they're not alone. But like, well, I don't want to compare it to anything else, but uh, there've been a lot of struggles in Israel that that have happened in huge waves. 
And uh, this is not one that we need to be anxious about. This is one that we need to acknowledge and to be able to support. Because unlike you know, people choosing to, to leave Yiddishkeit, gender identity is not a choice. And so if we force people to choose between their gender identity and a religious identity, a religious identity it is, it's a choice. We get schar and, and einish because it's, it's something that we're, it's telling us, we, we get to make that choice. So I think part of, of the reframing here is you don't get to decide if you have a queer kid, but you get to contribute to whether or not they're going to stay from. And the consequence of that often is do you want to have from grandkids, right? And so like, it's a choice. You're, you're empowered to do that. And it happens all the time. A woman called Stomi's daughter just came back from seminary. She came out as, as a lesbian. So I said, is she still Shomer Shabbos? And she said, yeah. I said, okay, Shane. So her being a lesbian is not a choice, but her being Shomer Shabbos is, right? Like, what do you want to do about it, right? Where, where do you want to prioritize that? And it's hard. And it's, there's a learning curve. And there's a loss often in terms of the image of what I was just speaking to parents last week. Uh, two from couples have uh, two daughters. Each one has a daughter. They, they're now engaged. And the parents are supportive. But what does that mean to be supportive? And uh, what does it mean to make a macha? And, uh, you know, in Eretz the, the yeshiva world votes not because they're tziayinim, but because it's subversive, that you can work within a system to be able to, to, to orchestrate a better outcome. So, you know, what does it look like as a win to have from kids who are Shomer Shabbos and want to raise from kids? It happens to be that they're queer. So I, I think that what's offensive about that to people is, like, very strange. It's, like, very strange, like... That no, we shouldn't support them to have from kids because like better there shouldn't be like from kids that have gay parents. Like, is that what we're saying? Like life is hard and like society can make things easier. And so I think like Holly still needs to make a choice. Do we want to encourage people to stay within the from community or not? And that that is on us. So I think I think we need to own it. Like, you know, I, th- I think there's there's I think there's a dim in all of this. And uh, I'd much rather own the choice of, of making space for people to acknowledge, right, that they can be in relationship with the Kiddush Baruch Hu, owning their choices, than to say, like, you don't, you don't have the choice. Number one, it sounds like acknowledging, being supportive. We want to prioritize keeping them from versus alienating them from Yiddishkeit. But number two, how do you bring it in in terms of two men marrying each other? So... They come for Pesach, there's a big family, and they bring their kids. Uh, are we that far along that we have from gay couples who have children who go to from schools? Yeah, I mean, you're asking, does such, are a, they... such a thing exists? It, you know, when we think in about the Haredi like, world? Well, I think in the Haredi world, it's, it's slower. But when we think about like the spectrum of, of orthodoxy, um, certainly there are even places in the center um, where there are parents who say, look, what do you want from me? Not to have a relationship with my, from grandkids, like not to, to have a relationship with, with my children. I mean, just recently I grew up, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and it's a pretty conservative place politically. So when I was growing up and it shifted in interesting ways recently, but somebody from, from where I grew up, who's kind of as far right politically as, as possible decided to attend the wedding of two guys. I think they all went to YU and, and felt that like, okay, like this is going to be a family, right? Within the Jewish people and what's achieved in, um, in telling them they're not welcome. What kind of wedding is there? Is there any religious ceremony or is it a secular ceremony? I think like, you know, the halach is kaveh the mitzias, right? Jewish law establishes the reality of something. So you salt meat, 
there might be blood, but there's not dot, right? If you do what you're supposed to do, like there's a space where, so Kedushin is Kiyikachis right? Even if uh, they're exchanging rings, it's not really, it's not Kedushin. Kedushin's not a partnership in that way. It's, it's a asymmetrical, you know, Kenyan. So I don't, I don't think there's like a move to to try to shift that. That's not, the terror is not ours to negotiate with. But I think that there are people who feel that acknowledging that there's some sort of committed dynamic where, you know, we want to raise a family together. We don't want to be alone. The terror also says it's not good to be alone. But I think like, again, that's the space where like it's too early to, to even know how that will land as some sort of like, what does a win look like in terms of the language, in terms of the structure? But I think the first thing to acknowledge is that there are going, there are people, right, who do not want to marry some of the somebody of the opposite gender because they're not attracted to them, but still want to have a family. And so, you know, is that is that something that like we're willing to to have at our our Pesach table? I mean, I would hope so. I would hope so. I, it's like like it, like it makes my head explode. Like, what do you mean? Like, someone wants to come for a Pesach seder? We're going to say no because they happen to be attracted to somebody of the same gender. Like that, like, sorry, like the Russia, yes, you know, right? Anyone who's hungry, yes, but you know, like, I, I don't, like, it's just, it's very strange to me. It's very strange. Like, and then I, I guess the question that I have for you is like, where does that come from, right? Like that, that sense of like, it's icky, it's, it's gross. Like, I, it's like, I can't, like, I don't want. So like, the question is this, yeah. let me actually yeah. define the question more. It's anything around sexuality or most topics around sexuality, we preserve to educate our kids a little bit later on. It's not as simple as olive base and parves and milkshakes and flakes. Now, is this topic something you start from zero or is this, you know, when, when they have kids at school that have two mommies or two daddies, when, how do you start the conversation right now? If something pops up on Netflix, kids, with a kid with two mommies and two daddies, I consider that not Jewish or not appropriate. Now, is that the icky thing or is this sexuality? I don't want to start this conversation with my four-year-old yet. Or so that's the question. Is this sexual conversation yeah. or, or is this just society conversation where Jews and these are non-Jews? And that's the conversation that I do have with a four-year-old. Right. So what I would say, like, if we think about an ideal conversation to have with a four-year-old is just like there are mommies and tatis, right? And that's not sexual. It's just like, that's what a family can look like. Families can also look like this. And sometimes there's a person of color and there's somebody who's right, who, who perhaps comes from a different country and speaks with an accent, right? None of that is sexualizing anything. It's an acknowledgement that it's not just a white man and a white woman, right? Like families can look very diverse. And so I think from a young age, right? That sometimes, right? Like when they play make-believe, right? I want to be a, a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. Do you say, right? No, no, those are only for particular genders. We say, listen, you can be who you want to be, right? So like, you know, you want to marry whatever that, that vision is. I just, I, I think that we need to, I think part of being a parent is becoming obsolete and that planned obsolescence that at some point in the natural order of the world, they will be here and we won't. So we want them to be prepared. And so when they are old enough to like kind of crawl, we put down a blanket and they give them this space and then they get a little bit older, they can go to this room. At some point they can cross the street by themselves, right? So at what point do we empower them with the knowledge of the, of the reality of the universe? 
that there are men who like men, there are women who like women, and there's actually categories of people who don't fit into those binaries. And they're not bad people, and they exist within our neighborhood. And like, you will meet them, and they will be lovely people, and you shouldn't point your fingers or like the same way in which we should have sensitivity to people who present or experience the world differently, that it's just part of God's broader creation. So now I believe there's a category for people who it's not, there, there's no other option. But then, as you mentioned before, there are people who are more fluid mm-hmm. and they may be attracted to people of the same gender or of the opposite. Now, they would have a much easier life in the Orthodox community if they happen to marry a person of the opposite gender, right? Why? Yes. So where's the line between giving it as options, just like would you like pasta for dinner or rice versus and that's the question with normalizing. I mean, showing it as an option that's just as easy or simple versus choosing a life that is not simple at all, because there's so many and I'm not we're not talking just Jewish community-wise, in the secular community, it's so difficult as well. That's kind of what it boils down to. like Where halacha is not a factor. Yeah, no, I understand. So I think that that's kind of the, the key piece is like, is this a choice, right? You know, we in monogamous relationships are choosing to be with one person to the exclusion of every other person. So that's a choice. So when a person uh, finds that person who they say, I just, I can't imagine not living the rest of my life with you, right? So I think that's kind of that point of like, well, what happens if that person is, right? Somebody of the same gender. It's, these, are, these are not simple chilas and each person is its own complicated chila. But I would say like, before you get to the B, we could, we could try to answer some of the other letters beforehand because, right, if we can create a society where we acknowledge that there's space for things beyond the heteronormativity piece of it, there's tolerance and acceptance, and then there is free for all. Here are your options. So it's this is Hefker, and I think that's one of the that's one of the stereotypes is that like the, the queer world is just this like unbridled place of expression where everything's mutter and there's no lines. That exists in the straight world. That, ex- that exists in the queer world. That has nothing to do with sexual orientation. It has to do with you know one person's definition of morality. And so at CBST we have many couples that married 30, 40, you know, they've been together before marriage equality, 30, 40, 50 years, um, and they have families, and they are as as holy as a union, as as part of a community, as, as any other partnership. So I think it's hard to visualize that if you've never seen it, but like when you're part of a community where, you know, at CBST, 85% of the the members are identified as queer and like they're the the same type of lovely human beings who are trying to make the world a better place then it, it doesn't code as like this is odd or this is other and i think that's part of the prejudices and that's part of like if you've never seen a person of color and then all of a sudden you do like it takes some time to figure out like i don't understand like is this, like are we, how similar are we as people and the answer you know in terms of straight people and queer people and trans people like we're not we're no less or worse human than than any of the others and i think in that space, some of the some of the questions are like, well, what do we do about these people? Well, these people are our people if we feel that way, you know? No, but they're naturally segregating. You, you are the minority in your community. I'm the minority in a lot of communities. It doesn't bother me. Like, I'm, I'm in New York City. I'm a, as a Jew. I mean, what I mean to say is like, you know, yesterday I'm walking down the street. Saying they're separating themselves from mainstream communities so they can feel comfortable. You're saying within the synagogue or you mean like queer people more broadly? 
Well, and we're talking about your shul right now. <laughs> yeah. So when my synagogue started in the 70s, right, it was the only place where a Jew could be out as being gay, right? So it was a place, the one place. And it only was necessary because of the failure of cholesterol, right, that they, they weren't able to be out within those places. You know, the Swarms say that that when it comes to right the synagogues right if, if we exclude people right and we discriminate like that's why god doesn't have a house anymore right it's the sin so like god doesn't show up because it's not a sacred space because the kedusha was when we bring our there so in the 1970s cbsd started because it was the only place there was not a, a rabbi or a jewish institution which again is one of the big indicators that it was homophobia as opposed to halacha because even within the movements that don't look at halacha the way that we do they still look at it as a novera same thing with christianity they don't care about shotness they don't dare care about Right. But like this possibly makes a difference to them. Why? Because there's homophobia in the world. So it's, it's I think it's it's not fair to say that CBSD is, is, is separating itself as much as they were searching for refuge. Right. Refugee camps is not a right. It's not a place of of, of criticism of like, why can't he be part of mainstream society? Because there's genocide and there's hate crimes. Right. So to the synagogues, like we as Jews, right, we separate and acknowledge who we are. And there's a huge uptick in anti-Semitism. Yesterday I was walking, I got three different uh, stupid statements that I mean, normally it's just one or two a day. Yesterday was a high volume day of three. But so like, what's the response to that, right? Do we, do we assimilate and say, like, no, no, my Jewish identity is not that important. It's not worth it. Or do we acknowledge the reality that there's, uh, we died for this, right? There's, there's, there's nothing more important than being authentic in who we are in our relationship with the divine. So I think CBST now, has a lot to teach the world to learn from what it means to, to be separated and now to be able to, to be more visible in, in other communities. I think that's the goal. When we think about inclusivity, when we think about equality, equity, accessibility, it'd be wonderful if like the world got fixed and they didn't need to do this work anymore. But uh, but until we can even acknowledge that like this is this is a Jewish concept, right? Right? That, that this is not just the ways of the of the billions, like, you know, there's just a lot of work to be done. Well, I've learned a lot today. And what's important to mention, a lot of my questions may have been asked as the outsider point of view, but I want to acknowledge that we have people in our audience who are a part of this community. We have people in our families who are part of this community. And it's not other, they are among us and they are our people and our families. And it's a complicated conversation that needs to continue to be had. But I do want to also mention how our communities have evolved and have shown so much progress in on all fronts when it comes to inclusivity of so many different types of people. And obviously, some communities are better at it than others. But when it comes to all kinds of people who may feel othered, when it comes to, you know, disabilities, or when it comes to their background, or their religion fluidity. <laughs> and we are very accepting. We, we always believe in a way to return. We always want to keep the channel of communication to God open. And religion is a personal thing. It's not as much as we create community around it. It's a very personal experience. And everyone is judged individually, not as a community. So we all have to individually act, educate, and do our part in making the community more aware and supportive. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And I think also just, you know, your existence as a woman who has a podcast, right? It's something that 
reflects the societal change of the role of women in society, right? And I think we would embrace that as like, this is an evolution, right? Which is really good. And it's creating space for people who didn't have access. And the world is enriched by that because it's a different perspective. It's a different uh, set of, of lived experiences. And because you are the result of your unique life experiences, you have a unique voice. And uh, I appreciate very much you inviting me here to, to share in this conversation. I, I hope that we're able to continue it. Uh, it's really good to be able to ask questions. And what it tells us, we should accustom ourselves to say we don't know. And I think like it's very good for society to say, like, I don't know. I don't like, what do you do about this? I don't know, but I can tell you what's really wrong. And I can tell you what like has really worked. So I, I hope that this invites people to continue to question. And I'm so glad that you acknowledged that when we're talking about people who aren't in this conversation, right? There's an awkwardness uh, in speaking about people without them, but they are very much our siblings and we have a responsibility. And when we take certain postures, we should ask ourselves, like, is this how you treat family? And this is the beginning. This is a part of a series. So we do have some interviews scheduled with queer members. And uh, I also want to mention when you did say I'm a woman with a podcast, I am a woman with a podcast who will never get an aliyah at my shul <laughs> because of how non-progressive halacha still is. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up today. If you'd like to reach out to Rabbi Moskowitz, where can people find you? I have a website, RabbiMikeMoskowitz.com, um, also at CBST. I've published about 130 articles and we have three books out, Chaver Up. Uh, I edited 49 Rabbis Speaking About Allyship. And the new book, Graceful Masculinity, is available on Amazon uh, that explores the, the role of Chayn in, in the archetype of the Guru Lachasin on the parasha and also textual activism, which is all three are available on Amazon. Wonderful. And your wife fully supports you in your work? Oh, my wife's the best. My wife supports me, not, not shot like in Lakewood, like the way in which women there support their husbands in learning. But yes, no, she's, uh, she's a tremendous ally and uh, herself a scholar and somebody who I think models what it means to be exceptional um, in the ways in which Halacha acknowledged that there was like exceptional humans in this world. And she's a, an amazing human. And yes, she's, she's, uh, she's my best friend. And yes, thank God, she's, she's super supportive uh, in all the ways. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening until the end. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please join the WhatsApp group to join in the discussion. Link is in the show notes. The link to donate to the Moscow Satyrs also in the show notes, as well as a link to contact me if you're thinking of launching a podcast or if you're thinking of becoming a sleep consultant. The link to get your free guide is over there in the show notes. And if you need help figuring out how to access the show notes, do not hesitate to reach out to me. I'm Francisca Music on Instagram, and I'll happily help you figure that out. As mentioned earlier, tomorrow we have a new episode dropping. And as promised, Rabbi Moskowitz shared with me that when I asked him off record, you know, do you get a lot of heat from other rabbis or communities for the work that you do? And then he said, you'd be surprised at how much support I'm actually getting from very respectable rabbayim and rabbis and communal leaders for the work that Rabbi Moskowitz is doing. So before you think, oh, get somebody who's anti-transgender or anti-gay and staying from on the podcast, Maybe think about how our leaders today, many of them, don't aren't able to openly speak up and take a stance, and they are privately supporting 
individuals and families going through these challenges. Thank you for contributing and being a part of this conversation. This podcast is a dream come true. Thank you for celebrating these um, big milestones with me. See you tomorrow.